Hello, welcome to the How to Eat Alone podcast with me, Julia Georgialis. I'm a baker and I write about food. This is a podcast that looks at the art of eating alone and explores topics surrounding loneliness and aloneness, which are not necessarily the same thing. I've been talking to people from all walks of life about their experiences of solitude and solo dining. With each episode, I've shared a recipe designed to be cooked and eaten by one person and one person only because most recipes are very often written for two or more people. Since I started this podcast, I've been really trying to frame aloneness as something good, something that can be really positive. It really can be. You know, there's many, many good things about doing things on your own. But sometimes, let's face it, it's a bit shit. And it's never as shit as when you're not feeling very well and find yourself on your own. Because when we're sick, we, you know, as a matter of survival, must seek out others to look after us. We can ask for help from family or friends or neighbours or carers or we can go to the doctor. But it's also really important to seek out emotional support or to reach out to people who might be suffering with the same thing as you. To make us feel less like we're carrying a burden on our own and that we're not the odd one out, you know, the only person with a certain type of illness or a certain type of disease. I personally have a chronic condition which is a type of arthritis and I've recently joined support groups and have found a lot of comfort really in knowing that even though I'm dealing with this condition on my own, there's actually a lot of other people out there dealing with the same thing. It puts it all into perspective for me. But, you know, what happens when you can't reach out to other sufferers? That was the case for my ex-hairdresser, Fanula Tulu. I've known Fanula for a while, she's in her late 40s, but she's worked as a hairdresser since she was in her teens. She's one of my neighbours here in North London, she's Greek Cypriot like me, and I started getting my hair done with Fanula when I was about 14. And though she doesn't work as a hairdresser anymore, she's still very much my hairy godmother. I have confided in her things I probably would never have told anyone else. I think it's kind of like the hairdresser's effect. When you're sat in a hairdresser's chair, you kind of just talk about things you might not tell anyone else. But a few years ago, Fanula had to stop cutting hair after being diagnosed with a rare condition that she nearly died from. In fact, she's one of the only known people to survive the final stages of her debilitating disease. Since then, she's recovered and relapsed and then recovered and relapsed again. But she's still alive. And she's not only just surviving her illness, she's thriving with it. And I've never actually spoken to her about what it's like to be the only person with a condition of medical interest. And I guess I was curious to know what it felt like to be the only survivor or one of the only survivors of a of a rare condition. And how she's managed to overcome all the challenges that it throws at her. Hi, Fanula. Thanks for being on my podcast. Can you maybe start by telling me a little bit about your story and about your condition and your diagnosis? Like, what is it? How did you come to find out you had it? I had this annoying cough. It just would not go. Uh, Misdiagnosed for years as poorly controlled asthma. I knew it was more. uh, I don't smoke, rarely drink. Uh, something just wasn't right. I just felt so unwell to the point where the world just started to go dark. One night it just culminated into so much pain. Um, 
unable to breathe and then I collapsed. I went to hospital and they diagnosed that that I'd had a heart attack but I didn't have the symptoms of a heart attack. They were really confused and then that kind of started the whole trying to diagnose me because there were so many things wrong. Everything that they were giving me just wasn't working. The cough, it was an asthma. I wasn't responding to anything. Finally, doctor came in, found out that some of my eosinophil levels were dangerously, crazily high, which they've, again, never really seen. And eosinophils are what are elevated when you have allergic reactions, whether to foods, atmosphere, pets, anything like that. So my own body was attacking itself and the heart was filling with water to try and protect itself but to the point where it was it was killing me really what is your condition called it's called chug strauss syndrome they've now renamed it eosinophilic granulatosis with polyangina and it's a form of vasculitis but this is where again the eosinophil levels are really really elevated so you have extreme reactions to things yeah so how long from the heart attack Did they diagnose you with this? Two weeks. What do they know about your condition? They don't know loads about the condition. They just know it's a form of vasculitis, and vasculitis is inflammation of the nervous system. But they know that with Churg-Strauss, it can affect the lungs, the veins, the heart, which is the last stage, which is the stage that I got to. And you survived that? Yeah. They usually find that someone's had chug strauss and got to the last stage from the autopsy i mean you are a bit of a lab rat right like they've done lots of studies on you because of that they've done loads they've done so many tests um because you're one of the only ones yes that's crazy yeah very. and like how does that feel well when you say it to people and they're like wow but actually it's not wow for me because it's really isolating yeah because i can't talk to anyone about it and also you feel like a lab rat. That it's trial and error. I like to confront them about most things because they're learning as much as I am. They say to me it's incurable and I kind of argue back, well, that's because you've not found a cure. I suppose it's just through testing that they're learning. So that's scary for me because there isn't loads of research. There's not much out there. Do you ever read the research that's done about you? I read the research that was done about me and it was the most scariest thing I've ever read but also the most uplifting because when I finished reading the report that the heart consultant did, I thought, wow, I'm still here after reading all of this. It was amazing. I read it and I thought, wow, this girl's sick and I thought it was me. Oh my gosh, I'm glad you're still here. Yeah, me too. Because they made it so clear from the start that it was very rare when I was in hospital that people, doctors would constantly be coming in and out, asking me the same questions, doing different tests. It was, I was so fearful because, like I said before, these people don't know what they're looking for. Thought they were fantastic, but there was no trust. It's those moments when I was alone, when the doctor's shift had finished, that I'd sit there and think, what have they found today? Um, am I going to go home? And you, you're married, you have Andy. Was yeah. he around? Like he was around? He didn't oh, leave really? the hospital. Yeah. No, um, I was in isolation because they were worried about me catching any infections. So I was isolated in a room. Andy didn't want to leave and I didn't want him to leave either because it was a bit touch and go. They were, they, 
there was talk that I probably am not going to go home. I was right. that unwell. So he didn't want to leave me. and I, He was my main concern. I didn't want him on his own. Yeah, I guess for both of you, that must have been really, really, really tough. Yeah. And more for him, really, because he was looking on. It's worse. It's yeah. better when you're in it. Yeah. Because you know what you can deal with, but yeah. the other person doesn't really know doesn't what you're know. dealing with. Yeah. It's quite lonely for him as well. Yeah. So that was in 2016. Mm-hmm. And since 2016... I mean, you've made a pretty spectacular recovery, really. Miraculous recovery. Miraculous recovery. It really is a miraculous recovery. How have you got yourself through that? Only my faith. My faith is important to me and it's what's real to me and that's the only way I've got through it. I don't remember you having faith before this. I had faith, but it wasn't alive, let's say. Right. It was something that I was brought up with culturally from my Greek Orthodox background but there was no relationship. I'm not a Christian, but I see how that really has helped you, like yeah. has just healed you. Completely. And I say that to people and I say it to the doctors and they look at me. Do like, people roll their eyes at you quite They a roll lot. their eyes yeah, at me. I can and imagine. It's, and it's funny, you can say anything about anything else, but once you mention Jesus, it's like, <gasps> I'm alive when I shouldn't be. Yeah. And that for me is proof enough because I put my faith in him when I was distrusting of everything else. And I've gone with that and it's worked. Well, yeah, it <laughs> clearly worked. has worked. Do you think having faith also ostracises you a little bit? Completely. Yeah. People stop listening, which is actually fine. It, it's weird. You never would think that something so kind and full of love would ostracise me so much because I'm not saying anything to offend anyone. The reason there's so much offence is because I think a lot of religions have been offensive, but I don't think your way of believing things is offensive. Do you go to church? Yeah, I go to church, and but I read the Bible. So I I go straight to the source. And you're also studying biblical counselling? Yes. Yeah. It's counselling, but Bible-based. Right. As it sounds. As it sounds, yeah. (laughs) That's what it says on the tin. (laughs) So how has your treatment changed you, do you think, as a person? I don't like the dependency associated with medication. That, oh, if I stop that, it's all going to go wrong again. It's been a really long process for me to be in control of the medication, not the other way around. It's not just the medication, Mm. though, it's... For the condition to be in control yeah, of you. and it's not. I've not. I've never owned the condition. I wasn't born with it, so I don't own it. Yeah. You know, I, I hear friends and clients, they own their conditions. Oh, my this. Oh, my arthritis. I'm like, no, no, no. You've acquired it. Yeah. You've got it, but don't own it. So I don't... I've never owned the Churg Strauss. It's something that happened, but I, it's not me. And that's really important, actually, for me to hear, and probably for a lot of people who have, like, a chronic condition. Yeah. I believe if I really owned it and I kind of submitted to that condition more than to my faith, I don't know where I would be. Medicine is great. That and your faith has saved your life. It all works together. I know you are a foodie and I know your diet has changed quite a lot because you have told me quite a lot of how how you've kind of changed your eating patterns since your illness. Yeah, because the condition is inflammatory. So I needed to go on an anti-inflammatory diet. And coming from Cyprus, you know, we've I've got that Mediterranean diet running through my veins, but you kind of rebel against it. I was the only Greek in my year. Yeah, so you're yeah. bringing in, like, weird food for yeah. a packed lunch and everyone's yeah. taking the piss out of you. everyone's getting the sandwiches. I open my lunchbox and it smells of like, I don't want your mother's. <laughs> I want a cheese sandwich. 
Cheese sandwich. <laughs> I want <laughs> I want chicken nuggets. I don't want flefty go. I know. I remember going on um a school journey and I opened my flask and there was rose cordial in it. Oh really? And everyone was like, Oh, you're drinking perfume. <laughs> that's delicious. Striandafil and it was rose cordial. Oh, that's delicious. Yeah. Loads of ice cubes and a bit of lemonade to make it fizzy. Oh, that's yeah. really nice. Yeah. Oh man. But but you have gone yeah. back to that original yeah. diet, I suppose. I try to not have sugar, which is hard. It's learning that control of you being in control of your body, not the other way around. Those, you know, just those treats. There's so many lovely treats everywhere because it's part of our culture. It's no one can come around and you don't get the cakes out and you don't get yeah. the treats out. What is a anti-inflammatory diet? Sugar is inflammatory. Right. Um, dairy is inflammatory and so is gluten. Right. So I'm not on a sugar, dairy or gluten-free diet, but when those three are together, they're quite explosive. All right, I do need to offer a disclaimer about the anti-inflammatory diet. So as are most diets, it's kind of contentious and there's very little research that has been conducted about whether it actually works. You know, in fact, even though it's been suggested to a lot of different sufferers from different conditions, from arthritis to multiple sclerosis, it's kind of difficult to pinpoint what actually constitutes as an inflammatory food. So as Fanula says, sugar is widely associated with inflammation and so is dairy, but gluten is debatable. Some anti-inflammatory diets extend to red meat, alcohol, and even to things like tomatoes, peppers and aubergines. I don't know what an aubergine ever did to anyone to inflame the situation is completely beyond me. But anyway, the anti-inflammatory diet seems to work for Fanula. But just bear in mind that as with all diets, what works for one person, it might not work for someone else. So are you saying, Fanula, no yes. cakes? I mean, I'm saying have cake, <laughs> but just now and again. Yeah. I don't think you should eliminate anything if, unless obviously you can't, but I just try not to overindulge. That's pretty straightforward. Yeah, I, For I think For some reason, so. I thought you were on a very strict diet. That no. sounds perfectly reasonable. I, just, I call it like the common sense diet. Yeah. I've tried to go back to the diet that my mum and dad used to feed me that I kind of rebelled against, I'm now going back to. And I'm loving everything that they used to cook. Yeah. The pulses, the fish, oh, the God, salads. Pulses. Yeah. It was a three times a week thing at my house. And when I'd open the door, coming from school, I'd think, oh, no, we've got beans. <laughs> we've got lentils. We've got... You know those smells, didn't you? Yeah, you just yeah, know yeah. yeah. No more Mugenda. No, that smell. But to be honest more. with you now, Mugenda is like one of the things I eat so much. It's so easy. Mugenda, for anyone who isn't Greek Cypriot, is a dish that I also couldn't stand as a kid from an immigrant family growing up. I would have much rather had chicken and chips for my dinner, but my mum gave me lentils, rice and yogurt instead. So Mugenda is a dish that extends from Greece throughout the Middle East. You might hear it called Fages Mugenda in Greece, Mugenda in Cyprus and Mujadara in the Arab world. I hope I said that right. I don't speak Arabic. It's very simply lentils, rice, sautéed onions, often served with a dollop of Greek yogurt. And even though I didn't like it as a kid, now I love it. I eat it all the time. You know, it's the Arab equivalent of rice and peas. And 
These days I make it fancy. I use red onions, different colour lentils, wild rice, and I like to add spice like cumin and cinnamon. Sometimes it's really delicious with a dollop of tzatziki rather than Greek yogurt. It's so quick, it's so easy, it's really good for you, and I can't love it enough. You can pimp any pulse. You can pimp my pulse. Yeah, pimp my pulse. (laughs) (laughs) And what's nice about pulses is they're equally as nice cold as they are hot. Yeah. So they're such a great on-the-go food. But so many people have problems with pulses, and I hear it all the time. But I was actually reading that the reason that that happens is because you're not eating enough beans, just because our systems are so blocked up that you need to just keep eating. Incorporate it in your diet. Keep eating those beans. Once a week at least. Keep (laughs) going. Once you start, you can't stop. You really stop. don't stop. <laughs> also, what's the problem with farting all the time? There's no problem. Better out than in. You're better out than in. <laughs> eat the beans. <laughs> exactly. So hospital food, what yes. did you eat when you were in hospital? That was my adventure every day. I loved it. Really? Yeah. Are you joking? No, I loved it. I was, Where were you in hospital? I was at the Rolfery. was in the private wing of the Mount Sinai, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I really... Julia, I was grateful to be alive. Anything they gave me, I blessed that food. Oh, man. I ate it and I was so happy. You're such a good human. I just think, you know what, I was just so grateful. It was very school dinnery and it was everything that's not healthy. This is the thing about hospital food is that people complain about it because it's not nutritious. But if you are on your deathbed, you need some sugar and some carbs. You need to be kept alive and those things keep you alive. Yeah, I think it did the trick because... When you're not working, you don't really want to have beans yeah, and salads and things like that. I, I really didn't want it. So I loved the chicken casseroles and the rice and the crispy potatoes. It's comfort and, food. And sponge and custard. Every day I have sponge. sponge and custard. Yeah. It's comfort food. It's rib sticking food. And I've yeah. lost so much weight that it really started to build me up. Yeah. You can't beat a bit of dinner lady food. It was fun. So I went with it. Yeah. And what about now? What do you kind of cook for yourself on your own? I mean, I know, you know, you've got Andy. What do you like to eat when you're on your own? I make eating on my own a real celebration. It goes back to my faith because he says I'm fearfully and wonderfully made and I'm like, I'm worthy of a nice meal because usually we cook for everyone else and we want to make everything special for everyone, whether it's for Andy or the family or friends. And then when you sit on your own, you think, oh, I'll just have a sandwich and a bag of crisps. And I'm like, no, I want to cook exactly what I want to eat. I, I actually go out of my way to cook something nice when it's just me. Yeah. Is it just you of- yeah. often? Mostly me and Andy, we'll always eat together. On a Thursday, he'll pop out with his friends and have something to eat. And Thursday night, I will always make something for me. Thursday night is my cooking night for myself. It's really important to have your alone time when you are in a relationship as well. Yeah, it's so, so important. He likes that equally as much as, as I do. If I pop out and he's on his own, he'll probably just grab a takeaway. Solo takeaways are the best. I just I love getting a takeaway by myself. And, and you know what? I actually order takeaways like I'm two people because I like <laughs> having another meal the next day. I, and Well, so I think I started ordering for two because I was a bit like, oh, I don't want them to think I'm on my own. <laughs> So for some, for whoever it is, whoever's preparing yeah. my meal, I'm like, oh, I'm, I need them to think that there's at least two of me. <laughs> but then it just became like, oh, I don't care about that. I just want all the food. Yeah, you just want all the food. I remember the first time I went into a restaurant to eat by myself. I must have passed the restaurant four or five times before I went in. Really? Yeah. I didn't actually tell my parents that I went into a restaurant on my own. Because there would have been, what, there was no one to go with you. 
And it's like, no, it's not about no one going with me. I actually wanted to go on my own. I was hungry. Can I not just be hungry? I mean, it's funny because when you go out for dinner as a couple or with friends, I usually base on what someone else is eating to what I'm going to choose. So then when you go on your own, just choose what you want. And also when you eat on your own, I think you can control the amount you're eating. You usually always eat more when you're with others. Where it's a little bit more disciplined, I think. Well, you you have two takeaways, so this might not uh, apply to you. Yeah, I'm pulling a face at the moment. <laughs> you are. And this I'm, might not apply to you. I think it doesn't apply to but me. But for me, when you're eating on your own, it's just cooking for one. Yeah. Not the Greek thing, like for ten. Yeah, and that's the thing that I think I struggle with and why I started this podcast in the first place was because I was cooking for myself and just making way too much food. Be in control. Yeah, be in control. Be in control. Be in control of your body. Tummy and mouth. Tummy and mouth. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tummy and mouth living happily ever after. Thank you so much to Fanula for telling me about her experiences with Cherg Strauss and for sharing how doctors and medicine kept her going on a physical level and definitely keep her condition under control. But it seems like faith and food kept her going emotionally and on a spiritual level. I'm not religious and to be honest, I don't really like or trust organised religions and I was kind of unsure actually about getting onto the topic of Christianity with Fanula but I do genuinely believe that without her faith, she just wouldn't be here. You know, I wouldn't have my friend here today and you know, you can call it God or you can call it power of the human spirit or you can call it a placebo but I think... I would call it a presence that guided Fanula so that she didn't feel so alone. And I, and I think that's what religion is. And it can kind of act as a direct salve to loneliness sometimes for many people. I just also wanted to touch on my own personal salve to loneliness. As I mentioned in the podcast, I order enough takeaway for two people whenever I order a takeaway. And I started doing this initially because I felt embarrassed to acknowledge that I was ordering food alone which is ridiculous why was I embarrassed about that but now it's just become a thing and it's become my own solo dining hack so takeaway is expensive it's way more expensive if you're single and generally speaking takeaway portion sizes are for more than one person and I love leftovers and it made more sense to me that if I was already paying for delivery to order more food because I mean I suppose it's economies of scale really. So I usually try and get three meals out of any takeaway order but also I have to say that you need to exercise some kind of self-discipline because I have absolutely been that girl who ate two takeaways to herself all in one night. I would definitely recommend ordering two takeaways for yourself if you can afford it. So I'm leaving you with a recipe from Mugenda, that old school lentil and rice Cypriot classic that both Fanula and I were so mortified of when it turned up in our packed lunches as kids. You can find this recipe and all of the other recipes from the podcast at howtoeatalone.substack.com. You can also subscribe to the Substack page and you can also find more on the Instagram page. Use the handle at howtoeatalonepodcast. As always, I hope you've enjoyed being alone with me for this episode. If you like this podcast, please share it with other people who you think might like it too. Or give it a good rating wherever you get your podcast from. I'll see you next time for the next episode of How to Eat Alone.